Our first reading is on page 131, uh, Deuteronomy 8. Be careful to follow every command I am giving you today, so that you may live and increase, and may enter and possess the land. The Lord promised on oath to your ancestors, remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothes did not wear out, and your feet did not swell, during these 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord your God disciplines you. Observe the commands of the Lord your God, walking in obedience to him and revering him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land with brooks, streams, and deep springs, gushing out into the valleys and hills. A land with wheat and barley, vines and fig trees, pomegranates, olive oil and honey. A land where bread will not be scarce and you will lack nothing. A land where the rocks are iron and you can dig copper out of the hills. When you have eaten and are satisfied, praise the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God. Failing to observe his commands, his laws, and his decrees that I am giving you this day. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, and when your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase, and all you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud, and you will forget the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt out of the land of slavery. He led you through the vast, dreadful wilderness, that thirsty and waterless land, with its venomous snakes and scorpions. He brought you water out of hard rock. He gave you manna to eat in the wilderness, something your ancestors had never known, to humble and test you, so that in the end it might go well with you. You may say to yourself, My power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth, and so confirms his covenant which he swore to your ancestors as it is today. If you ever forget the Lord your God and follow other gods and worship and bow down to them, I testify against you today that you will surely be destroyed. Like the nations the Lord destroyed before you, so you will be destroyed for not obeying the Lord your God. Our second reading, Luke twelve thirteen to 21. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, Who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, Watch out, 
Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich towards God. And the third reading is Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone." Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and the angels came and attended him. Uh, thanks very much, Mario and Debbie. And um, thank you again for your lovely welcome over the last four weeks. It's been a real treat to be here uh, with you and uh, to be able to uh, gather uh, with believers in a different part of the world um, uh, here at Trinity Northeast. Uh, I must say, as I get to the end of my time, I do wonder about the comparisons that are drawn between preachers and ducks, but I'll leave that for another time. Um, And I'm really thrilled to see also about active listening. Um, So I will be watching intently to see what your faces are like. Uh, My wife and I have worked out over the years that it's good for her to sit somewhere where I can't see her, so that I can't see the dubious look on her face throughout my talks. Um, which is also the same, actually, it appears for most of my colleagues at Trinity City. One thing you never look at is the other pastors, because that's, that's a bad thing to do. Um, I also want to apologise. Last week, I did carry on far too long. I had a watch last week, but I didn't make the mistake of not actually looking at what time I started the sermon, therefore I had no idea how long to go. But I can see today it's 22, so I will be shorter this week. Uh, would you open up with me to Deuteronomy chapter 8, and please also take out the inside... Uh, cover of the leaflet, you'll see some notes which will help you follow along what I want to talk about this morning as we come to the end of these four weeks, reflecting on what it means to live by faith under God's promises, 
As you'll recall, this series we've been trying to think, how is it that we live in anticipation of what's still to come, uh, not having fully realised it all? And the parallel we've been trying to draw is with Israel as she stands on the edge of the promised land, finally, having been rescued from slavery in Egypt, about to be taken into the place that God has promised her. And we come to the last of those talks today on Deuteronomy 8. Let me pray and then we'll get into it. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word and that it's been written for us and for our salvation. Uh, Thank you that it teaches us what you are like and how we ought to live in a way that brings glory to you. And this morning we ask, uh, encourage us, we pray, to stand firm in Jesus because of all that he has done for us. Amen. Uh, You'll see that the uh, issue that I'd like to reflect on uh, this morning is how can I be sure that I will persevere to the end? How can I be sure as a Christian that I will persevere to the very end? Uh, A way of putting that would be, of course, for the Israelites, how can they be sure that they'll be safe on the other side of the Jordan uh, when they finally enter into the Promised Land? There are, of course, a whole series of threats and challenges uh, to us who are believers, to standing firm in Jesus, to persevering to the very end. Many, of course, come from outside us, from beyond us, but they influence us. Uh, So for us, of course, sometimes we have the challenge of atheism, of those who seek to undermine our faith. And it's a very real threat, I suppose. That's why some of us, uh, well, we fear that so we can, particularly when it comes to our children, we can want to wrap them up in a little bubble and protect them from uh, all the threats that might be external. Uh, sometimes those threats are very real and physical. Uh, I referred to this a couple of weeks ago. Sometimes it's a fear of enemies who will persecute us. Uh, not yet in this country, but perhaps one day. And so we tend to withdraw and cease to engage. Uh, maybe actually the challenge to our faith is a little closer to home. It's just other Christians. Other Christians with whom we disagree, who let us down... Over time, we find ourselves less willing to go to church and gather with God's people, and uh, before you know it, actually, not only do we not want to associate with God's people, uh, we've given up associating with God. Uh, In my experience in pastoral ministry, actually, there are very few Christians who wake up one day and say to themselves, I don't believe in God anymore. It doesn't happen like that. You don't just wake up and decide that everything that you've believed for a while is no longer true. Rather, most often, I think it's a slow drift a slow drift away from God and his people, uh, sadly, all too often coupled with immorality. But the question that Deuteronomy 5, 6, 7 and 8 have been reflecting on particularly are not so much the things that are external to us, but the things that are within. Uh, What goes on in our heads that might cause us not to stand firm to the last day? Deuteronomy 6, a couple of weeks ago, warned us of one of those things. It's the risk of being distracted in good times. And Deuteronomy 8, the passage that Mario read to us, it's going to pick up on that idea and show another risk, uh, which is perhaps even greater. And you'll see what I want to cover there under point 3, Deuteronomy chapter 8. Firstly, our biggest threat is self-sufficiency. Our biggest threat to staying Christian, I think, is self-sufficiency. And Deuteronomy 8, in many ways, feels exactly the same as Deuteronomy 5, 6, and 7. You kind of picked up the theme, didn't you? Uh, God has brought you this far. He will care for you. Do as he says, lest you fall in the land. And in a sense, the message is just the same time and time again. One of the problems for us is that it raises in our head, therefore, uh, am I, is it all up to me to ensure that, having received God's promises, 
I never let them go. And to put it slightly differently, in the way in which uh, some Christians have tried to express this in the last 20 or 30 years, do we get into God's favour by His grace, but is it up to us to stay in by keeping His commands? Uh, The image here particularly, of course, for Israel on the edge of the promised land, are they brought into the promised land as an act of God's favour, but is, uh, is it up to them to stay in the land by doing what He says? Now, if I put the question that starkly and that bluntly, you might find yourself thinking that that's exactly what these last four chapters have been saying. Yes, God has been very good. He's done an enormous amount for us. He'll continue to bless you, but you, you must do what he says, and if you don't, you'll suffer the consequences. Well, today I want to focus on two ideas. The first, our biggest threat is self-sufficiency. Look at verses 12 through 14 with me. This is on page 832. 132. Verses 12 through 14. When you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, when your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase and all you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud and you'll forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Uh, There's a clear expectation conveyed to the Israelites as they stand on the edge of the promised land that it will be a place of unparalleled blessing. It will be a place of unparalleled blessing. Come back with me to verse 7. Look at the very first description of what this place will be like. Now, bear in mind, they've been in a desert for 40 years. So look at the very first way in which this land is described. Verse 7, at the top of the page. The Lord your God is bringing you into a good land a land with streams and pools of water with springs flowing in the valleys and hills. Isn't that a lovely description of what the land will be like for people who've been stuck in a desert for 40 years? There's going to be a lot of water there. And he goes on in those subsequent verses. Verse 8, he describes the incredible variety of food. A land with wheat and barley, vines and fig trees, pomegranates, olive oil and honey. Now again, they've been looked after by God in the desert They've been fed for 40 years, but they've just had manna and quail. And now, look at what's on offer. This is what God has in store for them. Uh, Verse 9, the second half of verse 9, this is a land where the rocks are iron and you can dig copper out of the hills. Now, I take it actually the rocks aren't iron, uh, that is they're rocks, but the point is that there is iron almost everywhere. They'll have the opportunity to make tools and weapons that they might defend themselves. And in summary, verse 9, the first half, this is a land where bread will not be scarce and you will lack nothing. You will lack nothing. How wonderful the picture of the blessing that God is about to shower on his people You'll lack nothing, of course, to me, sounds exactly like 21st century Adelaide. Doesn't it? Really, we lack nothing here. And uh, that's, of course, the reason why for them, uh, as you'll recall, the Israelites are constantly told that if an, uh, the phrase is an alien or a stranger, by which they mean a foreigner, not literally an alien, uh, if a foreigner wants to join Israel, 
If a foreigner is prepared to enter into the covenant that God has made with his people, then they ought to welcome that foreigner in, no matter what their nationality. And again, without diverging into politics, it does make me wonder about our current situation here for us who have uh, everything, um, if perhaps sometimes we might be a little more generous in allowing others who want to be here, just as in the end we all came here ourselves. Nevertheless, one imagines that their change in fortunes might be somewhat disorienting. This is a people that for 400 years were slaves, for the last 40 years have been wandering in a desert. So you can possibly imagine a scenario, can't you, where they go from one extreme to another, this land of incredible blessing, and they might not know what to do with themselves they might not know how to react. In case you're unclear, verse 10 gives the right response. Verse 10, When you've eaten and are satisfied, praise the Lord your God for everything that he has given you. The right response to being given God's gifts is to praise him. The alternative, of course, is that instead of praising God for his generosity, we start to congratulate ourselves. We start to think, you know what, we deserve this. Or we start to think, we've earned this. Or we start to think, it's our turn for all of this. So what Deuteronomy 8, I think, is, first and foremost, is a blunt warning against pride thinking we've earned it, and a blunt warning against self-sufficiency, thinking that we can look after ourselves, look how clever we are. There is nothing that can stop us if we put our minds to it. And again, it seems to me that um, whenever someone wants to get elected to high office in our country or perhaps, say, in another country like America, all they talk about is how we can make this world, this country, a better place. If only you vote for me. So, as they stand on the edge of the promised land, what the Israelites are being told is both, remember what God has done for you in the Exodus, in saving you in the first place, and look ahead to what God must still do for you in the conquest of the land. That is, God's provision, both past and future, must never cause us to boast in our own efforts, never cause us to think that we are self-sufficient. And I think the example in Deuteronomy 8, which puts it so elegantly, so simply, is verses 17 and verses 18. Have a look with me there, verse 17, near the end of of the chapter. Verse 17, You might say to yourself, My power... And the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth and so confirms his covenant, which he swore to your forefathers as it is today. Uh, Lovely, isn't it, the way in which it's expressed there? Even the ability to generate the wealth that fills your life, the ability is given by God. See, just as they needed God's provision of manna in the desert to survive, so they're going to need God's provision of agricultural skill 
of know-how in the promised land that they might continue to flourish. And so right to the very end, they continue to be entirely dependent on God. If you ever want proof, uh, sadly, as some of us know from our own bitter experience, if you ever want proof that in the end, even your wealth is a gift of God because it's God who gave you the ability to earn it, if you ever want proof of that, uh, well, consider unemployment or incapacity, both of which take away even the ability to generate that which we have. Uh, Put it in a slightly different way, I think what we're being told here is that the promised land is in some ways just as dangerous as the desert. The promised land is in some ways just as dangerous as the desert because prosperity can lead to pride in what we have achieved and to thinking that uh, it's all up to us and it's all thanks to us. And that's, I suspect, why Jesus tells that devastatingly insightful parable in Luke 12, the second of the readings, the one that Mario brought to us. There you meet a man who is living the great Australian dream. He's got his house. He's got plenty of stuff to live off. He's got even more coming in. So what does he do? He takes early retirement, gets on a boat and goes for a cruise. Well, no, he doesn't. God calls him a fool because he thinks that he's in control, whereas clearly he's not. So what hope does that lead for us? Well, actually, the answer lies back in the wilderness. The answer for living well in the promised land is actually to see how we survive even in hardship. And so here's my second point. Our only hope, therefore, is in God's Word. Our only hope is in God's Word. And I'll get you to come back to the start of the chapter with me. Verses 1 through 3. Chapter 8, verse 1. Be careful to follow every command I'm giving you today so that you may live and increase and may enter and possess the land that the Lord promised on oath to your forefathers. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the desert those 40 years to humble you and to test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you'd keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your fathers had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Look at verses 2 and 3 there. God is reflecting back on their experience on the desert. He says that he humbled you and fed you with manna. He humbled you and fed you with manna. That is... God both put them in the desert, he humbled them, and he cared for them. And he cared for them every single day with the provision of food from heaven that they would finally understand that to survive, we need more than just food, we need the one who provides the food. And so I think that when Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 8 verse 3, I presume you recognise that in that third reading in Matthew chapter 4, when Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 8 verse 3 against the devil, when Jesus himself is in the desert, what Jesus is saying is that if he performed the miracle of turning stones into bread, he'd be asserting his self-sufficiency, his independence from God. So he declines. After all, Jesus was in the desert for those 40 days precisely because God had put him there. What we're being told uh, when Jesus interprets Deuteronomy 8 is that spiritual food is the key to resisting physical temptation. Spiritual food is the key to resisting physical temptation. 
If you want to know how to understand your circumstances and what's going on and how to make sense of it all, if you want to know how to persevere to the end, what you need is God's word, not just the bread you eat. And the logic, of course, in Jesus' quote in Deuteronomy 8 is that if it was necessary for the Son of God, how much more so is it necessary for us? In fact, in verse 5 of Deuteronomy, if you just look down there for a moment, at the bottom of the page, verse 5, Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord God disciplines you. Verse 5 says that the right way to interpret hardship is as fatherly discipline. The right way to interpret hardship in our life is as fatherly discipline. Now let me say at this point, I understand that, of course, hearing those words fatherly discipline, for some of us, given our very, very inadequate fathers, uh, that's a very confronting image to hear. Um, Let me say, of course, that God's discipline is perfect and kind. It is not abusive in any way. That's entirely inappropriate. But the point here is that, therefore, 40 years in the desert for the Israelites wasn't just meant to be a punishment, though it was that it was also meant to be the way in which God brought them to maturity. The way in which God equipped them to be able to stand firm wherever they would be, including in the promised land they were about to enter. I think what it's doing is that it's anticipating what the writer of the Hebrews will say in chapter 12. In Hebrews 12, there we're told very specifically that uh, discipline is the sign of our adoption. Discipline is the sign of our adoption. Discipline is, in fact, the way in which we know that we belong to God and that we're His and that He loves us. And, of course, the logic that's uh, derived from Deuteronomy 8, even more explicit in Hebrews 12, is that, in the end, that's because the only people you bother disciplining are your own children. Uh, I have three kids. Uh, I've learned this over the years, right? Even disciplining your own children is painful at times. But the one thing you never do in a playground is discipline someone else's child. That's a no-no. You just don't go there. You only discipline your children because they are yours and you love them. And of course, it seems painful at the time, actually both for parent and child, I think. Nevertheless, it's the mark of maturity. And it's the way in which you learn to stand firm. So this morning, I have no idea if God is about to take you into the desert or into the promised land. I have no idea. It could be either, to be honest. But wherever he takes you, you need more than you can just provide for yourself. If you think you can do this on your own, that you will be self-sufficient, you will not last. What you need is the very word of God. And of course, that in and of itself is yet another reminder that it is God who saves and God who perseveres us to the very end. You see, what you need to survive in the end is not your willing commitment to God. It's not your good intentions. It's not your plans. It's not your actions. What we need to survive is God's word to us. And our only role in that is to listen and respond. That's the reason, of course, why 
those who say that you get into God's favour by his grace, but you have to keep his commands to stay within, that's why they are entirely wrong in every way. The only way in which we survive is because of God's kindness from start to end. Okay, let me make a few Christian reflections to wrap up. Point four. I simply want to ask you today, as we come to the end of this series, are you feeding on God's word? Are you feeding on God's word? And if you're not, then what's stopping you? Here's three common objections that I come across as to why people don't feed as much as they ought on God's word. First, why does God's word always taste the same? This is using the whole uh, food image that's come up in Deuteronomy 8. Why does God's word always taste the same? And of course, this is the point about Sunday sermons. Why in the end do they always sound the same? Why don't I learn anything new? Why do I always keep hearing the same encouragements and warnings over and over again? Why are they always about Jesus? I mean, how many sermons have you listened to in your life? There's Sundays, there's midweek, there's the downloads. In the end, they all just sound the same, don't they? It's even worse when it comes to your daily devotions, because at least in a sermon, someone else is having a perspective, but your daily devotion is just you. So you sit down there, you open the Bible, and you think, oh, I've read this before. And you do it over and over and over again. Two responses. Firstly, I do want to ask you gently but firmly, have you really plumbed the depths of God's Word? Have you really explored its breadth? And, you know, to continue with the feeding imagery, uh, when Jesus says, man will not live on bread alone, but by every word which proceeds from the mouth of God, every word, I think what Jesus means by every word is he doesn't just mean the easy words. He also means the words of God that can be, how shall I say it, a little hard to digest at first. So I found myself thinking this week, what are the words of God that I would liken to Brussels sprouts? You know, no, no one loves Brussels sprouts. No, no, it's not true. It's like sponge. No one likes eating sponge, so why would you like Brussels sprouts? You know, there's some parts of God's word that you know they're hard work. But actually, they're the ones that are most profitable. I've just finished, actually, this week, reading through Job in my quiet times. Now, I don't know about you, but every time I get to Job in my quiet times, I have this sinking feeling in my stomach that after chapter 2, it's going to be a long, hard slog. And guess what? It is. But I was struck once again by the end of how gracious and kind God is to Job. Even in the midst of extraordinary suffering... Nevertheless, he vindicates his servant. And I think to myself over these last couple of weeks, I could have just skipped that and ignored that. But I'll tell you what, if I hadn't have read that, as I reflect on some of the other circumstances that have taken place in my life the past couple of weeks, I would not have been nearly as well prepared. So if perhaps some of the sameness of God's word for you bothers you, it's because you've chosen actually only to focus on the things that are very similar and you're used to. Maybe look more broadly. Second response is, uh, and more importantly, this is in in response to the objection, God's word always tastes the same. Um, I guess my confession to you today is that most of the meals that I eat taste the same. If I think about it, uh, we don't cook 365 different dinners each year. I don't know how many we cook. We probably cook 15 over and over again. Sometimes the meals that we have are very special, right? 
you can reflect back on times in your life where you've been to a wonderful occasion where, uh, actually, to be honest, it's not the, the food that's made the difference. The food's been part of it. But you can think of those times. Some of the meals you do choose to deliberately repeat. So, for example, there's a restaurant that my wife and I found that we like, and we keep going there over and over again. They know us by name now, and that's, that's kind of weird, actually. It's like what my parents used to do. Um, but, you know, there's a place there, and we love it, and we keep going. But most of the meals that we eat, they do taste the same. So when I hear people complaining, I can't remember what I learnt last Sunday, or I can't remember what I learnt two Sundays ago, and there's never anything new in church, well, my response is, firstly, I try not to get too depressed as a preacher, and then my second response is, you know, I can't remember what I had for breakfast last Sunday either. It was probably the same thing as what I had last Saturday, to be honest. But I still needed to eat. And if I didn't eat, I wouldn't survive. Second objection, do I really need to feed on God's Word daily? Do I really need to feed on God's Word daily? And this is the point at which I want to talk particularly about the idea of daily devotions, which for some of us is habitual, for other of us, others of us is something that we've just never been able to crack or, um, or conquer. Isn't Sunday enough? Isn't Sunday plus a great midweek community group enough? Isn't the fact that uh, throughout my day I'm constantly talking to God in all aspects of my life, isn't that enough? Well, again, to use the food comparison, I suspect you probably don't plan to eat one meal per week. And I suspect you probably don't plan to eat two meals per week. I want to say, actually, my thinking on this has changed. For many years, actually, I think I thought that's exactly what I thought couple of good feasts once or twice a week, that'd be enough to get me through. And I realise that in saying this, of course, I don't want to induce guilt in people. Uh, But the more I thought about it, the image is very clear in Deuteronomy 8. It likens physical food and spiritual food. Both are necessary. So why why would you want to starve yourself of God's word Part of the way in which I've tried to think about, uh, I guess, encouraging people without burdening them is uh, to say, in the same way as most of your eating, your physical eating, um, follows a a particular pattern, think about the same when it comes to your spiritual feeding. So, um, here's my suggestion. Think about quick snacks on weekdays and feasts on weekends. Quick snacks on weekdays and feasts on weekends, because that's generally what you do, right? During the week, you kind of just make do, you make whatever you need to. Sometimes you make one meal on Monday and you eat it four nights in a row just because you couldn't be bothered cooking. But when you get to the weekend, you've got a bit of time, that's when you try and linger and dwell and enjoy. So maybe, maybe your devotional consumption might be similar. Work out how you have enough to sustain yourself during the week, but then when you have more time to be able to relax and enjoy, do just that. And I also want to say, if you're a leader, if you're someone who leads others, then this is particularly important. Um, This is a different image, and therefore it's slightly distracting, but I like the image, so I'm going to use it. It's like, you know, on on an airplane where they give you the safety warning and they say that if there's an oxygen shortage that the mask will drop from the ceiling, and they always say, parents, put yours on before you look after your kids. I I take it they say that because we think in a crisis that it'd be more important for us to care for the child, whereas what they're actually saying is, if you yourself are not sustained, you're good for no one. 
So same for those of us here who are charged with leadership. Can I encourage you, if you are not, uh, maybe this is the wrong image, if you're not growing fat on God's word, then those around you will be emaciated. If your life is too busy to feed on God's word each day, uh, if you're like the person who routinely skips lunch at work, then it's, I think in the end, because you think you are self-sufficient. That you can get by on your own. And actually, this is the response that I have to the person who says, Ah, but Jeff, I talk to God all day long in prayer. Like, we have a very real and vibrant relationship, God, and I'm always talking to him. I say, let me first of all say, that's wonderful. Prayer, I think, is the primary marker of our dependence on God. Prayer as opposed to action. Uh, But it seems to me that if speaking to God is not followed by listening to God, then really you're saying, I'm not that interested in what he has to say. Third and final objection, but my Bible, daily Bible reading habit just feels like a stale or a boring habit. It just feels like a boring habit. Let me say two things. Firstly, on habit, yes, I do want you to be aware of obligation. Uh, Although I do want to point out that life is full of habits. Life is full of routines and repetition, uh, mostly because we've worked out for ourselves that doing things routinely and automatically is better than having to derive it from first principle every single time. So again, this is kind of related to the food thing. Uh, It's like brushing your teeth. I presume that you brush your teeth automatically and routinely, and it's boring, but you do it anyway. And you do it partly because you don't want to have to think every morning and every night, all right, now let's see. I'll start from first principles about whether I should brush my teeth today. Let me think about plaque. I want to talk about social ostracism with bad breath. (laughs) I do the trade-off between time and reward. You You just do it, right? So... Some habits are good for us. Um, I suppose, to take it back to the food metaphor, good habits in food preparation. They're good habits to have. Boring, though, they might be, aren't they? That's good for everyone if you have good habits there. Uh, What about the boring or the stale? Well, this is simple. Just try something different. I mean, it really doesn't matter what. Just try something different. We do that periodically with our um, meal planner that Wendy comes up with each week for the week ahead. Every couple of months... She kind of throws it all in the air and says, I'm so sick of all of our food. You know, we've been eating this meal forever, which is not entirely true, but I understand the sentiment. And we just try something different and see how that works. So when it comes to feeding on God's word daily, here's a couple of suggestions. Uh, to experiment with something, to try something different. Um, firstly, the what. Uh, the thing that helped me most... Uh, and I've been using this now for eight years, the thing that's helped me most was I used to read those little devotional um, guides that would give you a verse to reflect on and then some helpful comments about it, and I really found them helpful uh, for a long time. Uh, But the thing that changed most for me, I think, was moving to a system of trying to read the whole Bible in a year. And I came across a book uh, called For the Love of God, uh, which is by a fellow called Don Carson, which takes you through a Bible reading for the whole year Um, You read four chapters a day from different parts of the Bible. He writes a comment on one of the chapters. But what I loved about this was that he says at the very start of the book, if you don't have time to read the Bible and read my comments, read the Bible, not my comments. And I thought, yeah, that's right, isn't it? That's the right order and right priority. Uh, So that for me has been the thing that's helped the most. And if you'd like some, um, you know, 
come and talk with me or talk with Stephen. He knows, he'll know all about it. Point you in the direction. It's a good Bible reading plan. It gets you through the whole Bible in a year. And I've been doing that now for eight years and I love it actually um, because it gives me a sense of a helpful routine to keep to that over the course of the year, I'd like to cover the whole of God's word um, in entirety. Uh, you might consider listening to the audio Bible whilst you're driving or jogging. Uh, that's obviously much better than listening to trashing music. Um, and I think it's probably actually also better than just listening to sermons and podcasts. Uh, good though they are, don't, don't let me say they're bad, they're better than trashing music, but listening to the Bible I think is better than listening to sermons simply because the person preaching the sermon probably doesn't know your circumstances. That's probably my guess. They probably don't know your circumstances that well. And so... Uh, reading the Bible directly is a chance for God to speak directly to you. And that means, if I can take a different illustration, you know the key part of today's service? The key part of today's service is not the sermon. The key part is the reading of God's Word. Because that's the point where God speaks directly to us, as He has for generations. Uh, other things you might try um, if you're looking to mix it up, uh, there's, you might think about when you read the Bible... Uh, for many years, I used to read the Bible at night time. Then we had kids. I've uh, been up at you know five o'clock for thirteen years, so I've kind of given up on waiting till night time because I'm too sleepy by then. So now I read the Bible in the morning. Uh, but you know, it might be morning, might be evening, might be lunchtime. Uh, and of course, then there's the where. The key for where I think you have your daily devotion is just somewhere where you won't be distracted. Just somewhere where you won't be distracted. Susanna Wesley, apparently, this is John Wesley's wife. Apparently, she. Some of you would know this story. She had twelve kids. Uh, in a very small house. Apparently the way she used to read her Bible was that she'd sit in the middle of a kitchen, put a tea towel over her head, and that was the sign for kids to leave her alone. Now, that to me just sounds so completely unreal that I'm sure it must be a legend, but I like the idea. You try and work out a way in which you can be distracted. I think the key for us for being undistracted is very easy. Just make sure your mobile phone is in a different room from you. Um, That's probably a good start. Uh, My personal confession, some of you will know this, and this falls firmly in the category of oversharing. Um, For me, the best place to read the Bible is in the bath. I love it in the bath because I can shut the door, the kids go away, they leave me alone. I have lost a few Bibles to water logging, but (laughs) I figure I'm willing to bear that cost. Uh, In the end, if it feels like a stale habit, just create a good habit uh, because good habits are good for you, and in the end, they're realistic and flexible. I talked about this a couple of weeks ago. If you fail, that's okay, just start again. Uh, and again, the parallel with our, um, our eating, our physical eating, uh, my wife does sit down and make a weekly meal planner every Sunday night. It's a lovely piece of fiction, uh, because by <laughs> Friday or Saturday, something's fallen apart. You know, that dream of going to the shops once a week and buying everything for the whole, it never works. Uh, But you know what? We keep eating. Like, we don't give up. (laughs) All right. One last time. Lest you hear in this whole exhortation to feed on God's word, lest you hear it's all about what you do, not God's grace. What I want to say today, this is not primarily about us feeding ourselves. This is about us coming to God's table where he has it laid out for us. And even the provision that we have, it comes from him as an act of his love. So Psalm 81 says, open your mouth wide and I will fill it. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. As I've done each week, finish with a memory verse. Maybe you can remember the ones 
from Ephesians 2 about God's grace, from Romans 8 about God's incredible favour that he has shown us through the gift of the Lord Jesus, uh, from John 14 about the home and the room that he's gone ahead of us to prepare. Where I want to finish is with 2 Timothy 3. All scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness so that God's people might be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Heavenly Father, thanks for your word. Thank you that you've written it for us and for our salvation, that we might stand firm to the end, we pray, in this week. Give us opportunity and give us courage to be able to devour it, that we might know what you are like and how you would have us live. Amen.